my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've had conversations here at Afrotech with some of the most incredible founders, technologists, scientists, dreamers, and VCs. And I'm excited to bring you today a talk between Blavity CEO Morgan DeBorn and Olin Douglas, who was one of the first financiers to raise over $150 million for his fund at Motley Fool Ventures. He serves as managing partner at Motley Fool Ventures, which is an early-stage technology-based venture fund focused on companies at the Series A level. For anyone in the C-suite who's looking to find their next elevation, Olin talks about being a CFO and transforming into a VC and raising one of the largest funds on record to invest in startups. We are going to talk all about Motley Fool and his entire journey 
Um, you all may not know this, but he was one of the first people to raise over $150 million for financing and fund. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Where are you raised? Um, and then we'll get into it. Okay, okay. yes, and I'm uh, Olin Douglas. And right now I'm managing director of Motley Fool Ventures. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland um, and still consider Baltimore uh, my home. My background is in accounting and finance. I was worked at KPMG, uh, a few um, large uh, banks, and then came to the Motley Fool about almost 20 years ago. And for most of the time at the Motley Fool, prior to launching the fund, I was their chief financial officer. So tell us a little bit about Motley Fool. I personally have been investing since I was a little girl, probably like 13 or 14 years old. And I remember Motley Fool. I used to read Motley Fool, all, only the free stuff, because, you know, you have to pay um, <laughs> yes. And then I read um, Black Enterprise. They used to have like a stock section. Um, and then I had a Charles Schwab account. And so, you know, Charles Schwab has all the little ratings and, and things. So I used to read those. Um, tell me about the Motley Fool, like for those of people who don't know, what is like the business and then we'll get into, you know, the fund. Sure, sure. So the, the business of the Motley Fool is helping people to learn how to invest uh, in the stock market. And it's really interesting, Morgan, in the sense that when you think about all the opportunities to create wealth, um, <clears throat> the stock market, I, I believe, is probably the most democratized access to wealth is, is, is by far. TDA Ameritrade does not care what you look like. <laughs> and they don't ask, they don't care, right? Schwab doesn't care, Robinhood doesn't care. There, there are none of the barriers that you have when like it's real estate investing and someone has to sell you that. I don't have to call up Tim Cook to buy Apple. You know? And in fact, if I tried, he wouldn't talk to me. It really is it's something and with some of the changes now we're making that access um, even better. Um, Wealth through the stock market, if you have a long-term horizon, is really just a fantastic opportunity. And that's what The Motley Fool does, is teaches people how to find stocks and do it in a way where you're not competing necessarily with the pros who are, who are doing it on a daily basis, but just a long-term um, uh, investing horizon where you're investing in great companies. Mm, that's awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your journey and you know, being CFO of The Motley Fool is a huge deal. And I know a lot of people that are watching this probably have corporate paths as well as whether they start off in the corporate world and then now are interested in being an entrepreneur, or have started their business because we're on the founder stage. Um, I feel like all my friends who raise funds really feel like entrepreneurs for the first time. So yes. prior to that, you were like, you know, a huge operator of a big entity. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Like what made you decide to go on this career track and um, what were the kind of things that you do as C CFO? Okay, that's interesting. I'll tell you a, a story about how I uh, uh, joined the Motley Fool. I was working in, a, in the banking industry and uh, uh, back there you had United Way campaigns and um, you people were very much encouraged to participate in United Way campaigns. And I remember this moment when someone came to me and said, uh, we're running a campaign. We're encouraging everyone to uh, participate. You don't have to, but we just want you to know that if you don't, we're going to give your name to the CEO of the company. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how voluntary that sounds. <laughs> 
And um, I, I tend to be someone who likes to change from within the system, right? <laughs> so I'm not going to, I'm not going to start a revolution and burn the place down, but you know, I'm going to, you know, so I said to myself, well, look, this is, you know, this is crap, but um, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it the right way. And I know this company called the Motley Fool and they teach you how to invest in charities to ensure that you can do the research on them and, and you find ones where the money goes to, um, to the charity and not just to administration. And um, I looked up uh, United Black Charities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the Motley Fool says is check the job wanted boards because you want to make sure they're not changing out of director so it's not in transition. So I'm, I'm on United Black Charities. I'm looking for the job boards. And what do I see is an ad for the Motley Fool. Wow. You know, I'm like, wow. I was like, I didn't even know you were in my neighborhood there in Alexandria, Virginia. At that time, I was in a, a suburb. I was like, man, that's crazy. Um, and then I applied, and uh, as it turns out, they were doing a radio show at a conference that yeah. weekend. So I said, well, let me go to this conference and check them out and see, see how these guys are behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, and it was crazy. And, I, and so first of all, I went, they were speaking at the end of the conference. It was like a two-day big conference. So I went at the end, so I didn't have to pay. So I could just go, <laughs> because they were, they were kind of closing at that point, and they were doing the radio show live. And I said, well, these guys seem like they're really fun and interesting, but I want to see how they treat their employees when the cameras go off, like during the breaks. Do they turn into Krusty the Clown when they're like smoking cigarettes and, you know, <laughs> and cursing everyone out? And I said, I'm just going to sit in the audience and um, see what happens. And so I got there. I'm sitting there watching them doing the show. They're, they're pretty much the way they are beforehand. And then the uh, first commercial break comes. Uh, everyone takes a break, they come out and they say, okay, everybody, before we do anything, I just want to do something else. Let me bring up our producer, so-and-so. And they said, and his mom and dad in the audience, so let's all say hi to their mom and dad. And I was like, wow, this, kind of, this is when like no one was looking, the cameras weren't on, it wasn't being filmed. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then um, I'm sitting there, you know, my arms folded, just really kind of checking them out. And the next commercial break comes and a guy walks up to me and he says, hey, you know what, can you do me a favor? I'd love for you to read this promo, promo for our advertiser. <laughs> I'm like, why me? I don't know. You're sitting here. I'm like, cool. So somewhere there's a promo for me uh, hawking Krispy Kreme on the Motley Fool <laughs> promo from like 2000, 2001, something like that. Wow. So that, so that was my uh, introduction. I met the uh, founders at the, the meeting. Uh, I had a, I got past first screen in the interview. I go into the office, the brothers are Tom and Dave. I go in, I see them. I call David Tom and Tom David, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, it was interesting, but I got through that. I started um, in January 2001. In my second day at the company, I went in and had to tell them that they had too many people. <laughs> you know? What was the role? The title? Uh, it was, my title was Director of Financial Planning and Budgeting. And was there a CFO yet? Uh, they were, there was a CFO, right. And we were kind of doing a transition. In, but I was coming in with like kind of a strong financial analysis background, like financial planning is kind of a lot mm -hmm. of what I had done. Um, and it was one of those situations, and it was public at the time. You could probably look it up, but we, we had like five months of runway. <laughs> and I was like, and people, were, I was like, I was like, guys, I mean, I know this is a pretty collegial place and you, know, you guys like everyone, but you know, 
and we gotta this is we just this is not working you know <laughs> and that started um you know and that started maybe like nine months of restructuring a company where we went from over 400 to under 100 um and really formed the foundation of what we're doing and the only thing i would add to that which is really interesting i've, I've found over over time is that the story is true and that's kind of how it happened but what's what gets lost in that a little bit is that there is no way someone can walk into a company and two days later kind of deliver that message with confidence without a lot of help and support from people who were already there that's and so right. you know and it just kind of speaks to the caliber of the company and the people that were there and a lot of those people who helped me to be helped basically an unknown person to come in and be successful are still there today which is really kind of cool well there's a couple things that i want to highlight for our afrotech community one you're a hustler you went to a <laughs> conference didn't buy a ticket uh shout out to anybody watching this who didn't actually buy a ticket to afrotech but you're still here i've <laughs> taken my ceo hat off i support you you know because at the end of the day we as a people, you, doors aren't always open, right? And you can't let ticket prices, you know, permission asking, you know, lines, you know, I'd be at a club, be like, you know what, guys, we are not waiting in this line. We're going to go to the front and just make sure before we stand in this <laughs> line, right? So that's one thing I love about our people. And I think it's just so indicative of your entrepreneurial spirit and, um, you know, I don't want to overlook that because sometimes and oftentimes in tech and in definitely in corporate spaces, you have to really show up. You have to be aggressive and you were politely aggressive, right? Yeah, sure. um, but you, you had a mission in mind, right? And, yeah. and I think that that is um, really admirable, you know, that you've been able, you were able to navigate through. And I imagine that's often how your career has gone. You're <laughs> kind of like, hey, I'm here. So just wanted to call that out because I think many, many people watching are going to feel the same way and have had similar stories. Um, so CFO, you become CFO, um, stabilize the business, you know, build, build into cash flow positive. Uh, many, many media companies are not successful. Um, do you all consider yourself a media company first or no? Uh, not really. I think one of the interesting things about the model, when you take the name is that um, obviously you're, you're, you're screaming to the world that you don't take yourself seriously, but then you're also saying that you're kind of not going to fit into a box. And so people call us a media company, sometimes uh, financial services. We don't know if there's really a title that fits the Motley Fool, but we don't really care about that. You know, it's just, we just want to help people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like smarter, happier, and richer. We're a company that's trying to make people smarter, happier, and richer. And whatever, awesome. whatever box makes you comfortable uh, dealing with us is the box we'll all be in. Like, we're not offended by being called a media company. <laughs> yes, I that. Um, amazing. So let's fast forward. So you raised this fantastic fund. It launched in 2018. Yes. Um, over 800 LPs, which is quite rare for a fund of yes. that size. Yeah. Um, I believe 20% at least are women LPs. Mm -hmm. sure. uh, also fantastic. So tell me about the road to 2018. Um, and I believe you raised it in under a year, which is also unheard of, folks. Like, these are <laughs> insane statistics. Yeah. And obviously he's a black man, right? <laughs> fund. So so tell me, tell me the journey to that. Like, how did you, what, how did, how did we get here? Yeah, uh, it, it was interesting. And, and 
I think the genesis of it was uh, twofold. Um, back in, I can't remember the exact uh, time frame, but... Uh, my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. AT&T connects and ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. 
prior to launching the venture fund, we ran a little pilot program internally. That pilot program had its genesis and we had a, the Motley Pool had a subsidiary in the United Kingdom um, that uh, was also in the financial services, but it was, it was closer to like a nerd wallet type of company where the Motley Fool is more about kind of like the investments and ideas. And that was fine at the time, but we had wanted to focus the brand a little bit more and be more about kind of uh, less on the advertising side, more on the subscriptions and asset management. And so we needed to make a change um, in that business. And long story short, instead of shutting that business down, we decided to uh, uh, organize a structure and management buyout. We sold it to the company and we retained um, 20% mm. as kind of owners. So it was like a friendly management buyout. Instead of laying out both a bunch of people, we actually created a company with entrepreneurs. They went on to sell the company uh, years later and we made multiples of the shutdown costs and saved okay. a bunch of lives and made a few millionaires, you know? So it was really kind of a good, story and that got me thinking about got to think about well this private company thing is interesting and uh, and, uh shortly after that, our ceo tom gardner he had an idea he wants to grow the company he looks at his leadership team he he feels like he has a um, kind of trust in him he says to all of us i'm going to allocate a million dollars to each of you go off and experiment with something that you think can be big for the company in the future, you know, put, put together your plan and come present it to us. We like it. We'll try it, you know? And so everyone just four or five of us mm-hmm. went off. I came back with, Hey, I kind of like this, uh, you know, that it's called love me. I love, love, they love money thing. Let me uh, see if we can do some more private company investing. Right. And, um, they said, uh, yes. And so we did that uh, for a few years, for about four or five years. We had some pretty good returns, a couple of exits. Yeah. And the time came to either go back to my day job full time or, um, or kind of do this seriously. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit longer version because it, it, it cracks me up. And it's, it's um, I, I reflecting on what I learned and, and, and my experiences sometimes um, I really enjoy, but I wanted to continue to do the fund and all honesty, I wanted to continue to do the fund as a side project. I wanted Tom, I said, Tom, can you just allocate some more money off of the balance sheet so I continue being the CFO and I can do this and we'll build it over time and we'll get to where we need to go. And uh, Tom was basically like, that's stupid. And he's like, he's like, <laughs> he's like I, and, and this is shortened version. This is what I heard, not what he said. <laughs> but this is what I heard. He's like, this is stupid. It's like, I got big plans. I got big dreams, you know, you, and it was what I really love about it. And it really strengthened our relationship is that I always felt like he hated my idea, but he loved me. Like I never felt like it was me because what he would say was like, stop playing around with that stupid thing and come do some big stuff with me. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, but this is big. This can be big. He's that stupid. I, you're not thinking big enough. Come, come do some real stuff. And, um, finally, um, you know, we go back and forth and he's really pushing me to kind of be my best in, 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 in retrospect. I was so angry at him at the time. <laughs> but uh, finally he comes and he says, all right, look, here's the deal. You go hire somebody and they can work for you and they can play with this venture capital thing on the side and let's go like rock the world, right? You know, <laughs> with, some, with my ideas, right? And um, 
And I said, well, what, is, what would be big for you, Tom? And he said, well, it's big in a venture capital. He said, no, no, I don't, you know, I want to do, I want to do hundred million dollars. That's big. I was like, how are you going to do hundred million dollars? Like, I don't know. That's not my problem. <laughs> you asked me what was big. And I was like, all right. And so he said, so go find somebody to do your thing and you can, they can report to you and let's, let's go chase hundred million dollar ideas together, you know, on the, on the CFO side. And, um, so I said, okay, that sounds like a reasonable compromise. And, um, you know, so I, I go out and I think, uh, and then I come back to him and say, all right, Tom, this is awesome. I found someone to go after that $100 million venture fund. And he said, oh, that's kind of cool. Who? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah, he was like, what? I was like, yeah. And he was like, I don't even know. And I had been, I had been CFO for 14 years. So like, seriously, I mean, it's, Right. Is it was probably, I'm probably way overdue getting out of that seat you know, and, and moving right. on and um and so he so you know we went back and forth on that and we agreed on it and he said um you know you want to you want to launch an early stage fund I understand that I guess there are roughly six seven hundred early stage venture funds mm-hmm. he was like I don't want venture fund number six hundred and forty nine of six hundred and fifty didn't just. That's just the same. He said, that's, no. So do it, you know, I need something that's interesting and different. Yeah, right. You know, and that, and that kind of started us to what we could do. So we looked at our assets. We looked at our liabilities, if you will, on our liability side. First time fund for the company. First time fund manager myself and then being a fund manager color. And even two years, I mean, the world is completely different now than it was like two years ago. <laughs> I could, I couldn't, I mean, we made some initial forays on the institutional side and I couldn't even get people to tell me what I was doing wrong whether I was wrong or so a couple things because there might be people watching who have aspirations to also have their own fund a lot of people are watching the news and they see a black fund announced every five minutes right right. (laughs) and they're all all billion dollar funds as you as you and I know just because you've announced a $50 million fund or a $100 million fund or a billion dollar fund, that doesn't necessarily raise no. money. And a lot of people in the media, and I try to tell the Apertech team this, I'm like, you got to loop back. You got to loop back and see, well, how much have they raised? Or when we cover the story, you got to ask, great, of the 50, how much do you have committed or how much do you have raised, right? right? And are you doing, are you already actively investing? So a couple, couple things, I just wanted to highlight that so that as entrepreneurs who are interacting with VCs, I think it's so important that we know how to ask the questions. You know, you don't want to go after a VC who doesn't actually have the money or hasn't fully raised because you're wasting your time. And in fact, oftentimes they're using your decks and your report, your information to go raise the money. Yes. Right. Um, Which is a conversation we could have later, but I think, you know, so that's, that's one, one thing I'm going to highlight is like two. And then the second thing is, you did a pilot, mm-hmm. Twin Team did a pilot for four to five years. And as, as a 30-year-old, the idea of doing a pilot for four to five years feels like, no, never. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a lifetime for me, right? So I think that's another thing is sometimes we see the, we see the press, we see the headlines, we see the result, we see the mm-hmm. use, but we don't oftentimes know how long, how much hard work, how much trust, um, you know, you are an incredibly experienced top 1% of 1% of 1% type 
person in this country and certainly within our community. And um, so one just want to highlight that as well, because we're oftentimes like fast, you know, gratification kind of occasionally. So those are the two things. Now getting into the operations and the structure, um, tell me about the process of fundraising. So you just mentioned uh, institutional investors. So traditional mm-hmm. VC funds for that are at the, over $100 million, I should say, typically have institutional investors, which would be like, give us some examples. So institutional investors would be uh, uh, like uh, endowments, like people may go to their alma mater, to their endowment to get that. Um, sometimes pension funds, if you're larger, they're, they're folks like Cambridge Associates and others, which are capital allocators that introduce you to uh, institutions. Sometimes the corporations are, are investing in funds now, but mm-hmm. you're talking about big, uh, large companies that have allocated some of their money to invest in other funds in that strategy. Um, and we just weren't, and we just weren't connected. There. I don't, I don't, well, I do now, but at the time, I didn't know anyone in that world. I mean, like zero. <laughs> um, and, the, and the rest of the Motley executive team? The, the Motley Fool did. Um, but um, yeah, there just wasn't, you know, how to approach them about this was something that, you know, you just didn't have a lot of those, those connections. And, and I think it's interesting with the Motley Fool, at least I found this uh, with me a very supportive company, but um, you got to work, you know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, our founders are extremely well connected. And what I have learned over the years is that they value their reputation. And so like, I value their reputation. So if I'm going to go to them and ask them to open up their network, I need to make sure that I have something that is worthy of them putting their reputation behind. That's fair. You know, uh, right. And so don't put them in a position where they have to compromise themselves because I haven't done my homework, right? And that sort of thing. So um, so I needed to come up with a solid plan to raise money that didn't rely on them making personal endorsements for something that, quite frankly, they didn't really know was going to be successful or not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so what we looked at, what we did have is um, we had the history of the Motley Fool. We had all of these subscribers. And what we said to ourselves was, well, everybody expects us to do things different. And, and we had a focus group, and it was so funny. I was just so nervous. And we had a focus group. We laid out um, what we were going to do. Uh, we were very conservative. We wanted to make sure that people understood that this was a new journey and not wanted to take any risk and everything. We laid it out. And some of the feedback came to me. Some of it went back to Tom. And it was like, that is so boring. I just can't. I don't even, I have no interest at all. You know, I was just like, go back and come back with something that's going to be fun and interesting. And, you know, from a fiduciary standpoint, you always worry about losing your clients' money. And I certainly, as a CFO, I certainly worry about that. But these people are adults, you know? And if I, if I go to the, and it's not that venture capital is, is a gambling city, but there are certain things that you do that are high risk. You know, you don't, you don't get on a roller coaster and then complain because it's not Mr. Toad's wild ride, right? <laughs> you, know? you go on a roller coaster because you want the thrill of a roller coaster. 
and it's just being able to um, accept that people, you could present what you want to do and allow people to opt in or out. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be overly worried about whether they understand, you know, risk or not. There's some that, that don't, but for the most part, they do. Right. So we said, um, well, this is what we're going to do. Instead of that traditional model where I find an anchor mm-hmm. LP, and then I find a few small people around them, I set them on the side and make the money, I do my thing. I said, why don't we go out and get smaller checks from a lot of people? And then instead of keeping them in arms, let's bring them in, make them part of a community. And let's see what we can do together. You know, because, you know, I don't know everything. I certainly don't know close to everything, but maybe me plus 800 other people, maybe we can figure out some things together, you know, in a lot faster time than we, than we did. And so we did the raise in two steps. Uh, the first step was um, about three months, very old school. You know, we got, got a list of names of subscribers. Hi, Roland Douglas, Molly Poo Ventures. Wow. Hi. <laughs> this was only two years ago, right? I mean, two, like 1990 doing phone calls. <laughs> yeah, 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 we did. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, uh, I had four calls a day, five meetings a week. And that was, and, and I had a, a, a woman uh, working with me, helping me. She's awesome. Um, if I was uh, kind of behind, or we were kind of behind, she would just add more meetings to the calendar. <laughs> just, Keep going. Yeah, she was she was like, we are, this is going to happen, right? And um, we did that. We raised $40 million that way in about three months. We did some interesting things that were just different. And like when we talked to people, we knew we had a large audience. We knew that, relatively speaking, um, there were limited number of slots available in the fund. So when we talked to people. We just asked them at the end, did they want to make a reservation? It was non-binding. Yeah. What it did was it guaranteed them a spot. They didn't have to take it, right. but it let us know how we were doing and where we were doing. What right, was right? the minimum investment in the first, that first tranche? The minimum uh, in the first tranche was 100. We had two classes, 100,000 and 250,000. Most of the first class, we were trying to get people with that $250,000 commitment, but they could, they could put the reservation in for, every, for whatever they wanted. Um, <laughs> Accredited investor, they or how does that work? Can any individual invest in a fund? Yeah, uh, can't. And because we have a fund structure where we knew we were going to go over the ninety-nine that most people hear about in the fund, there is another level that allows you um, to have up to two thousand people in your fund. But in order to do that, um, you have to have a minimum five million dollar net worth to kind of get into the fund. So the bar goes up higher. Fortunately, we have a large audience and. Um, you know, so we just went, uh, you know, dialing for <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are like, great, I'm going to crowdfund my black fund. I'm like, well, hold on now. There are some requirements, right? Yes, exactly. They are. You know, it's, the system isn't necessarily built for us, but. No, um, it's not. Yeah. That's really helpful to know. And so fast forward to today, you've got $150 million, uh under management. Um any second fund on the horizon or how, how far are you through the 150 million? Um, so we're about halfway through the 150 million. Uh, what I would say with that, that first 40 million was um, kind of manual. We took like a six week and automated everything. Everything oh. that we learned, everything we did, everything we've, we, we figured out, we then automated and then raised another 110 in the next 12 weeks. So two and a half times. And I probably, the first time I probably did a couple hundred calls. The second time I 
probably did a dozen. What, what was the automation? Was it like literal, like email drips? Was it um, documentation, presentation, webinars? Like what did automation mean for you? It, it meant everything. Instead of doing phone calls, we did emails. The questions that I was asking the phone calls, you know, we had quest frequently asked questions. Um, we did videos so that we were, you know, answering up front of questions that we had. Um, at that point, like I found is at the end of the day, David Gardner, one of the, that was my first LP, Tom Gardner, the other founder was my last LP. So we yeah. booked into them and say a nice little Gardner hug there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah, but the documentation, uh, we did videos on how to fill out the documents. We, you know, the, we did have to do some verifications. Those were automated, which just kind of automated everything. Wow. And so two years in, we're thinking about what would be our next um, products. You know, we, we're just in the, in the initial phase of, of thinking, do you want to do a larger fund? Do we want to do a, a different fund? We're still figuring, about it, figuring out what's important for us, um, Morgan. I said, we're not going to launch a fund until we have proof that we know what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so with venture funds, you need a couple of years before the uh, information starts to come out about whether, uh, how you are performing relative to your, to your cohort. Yeah. So 2018 information is just starting to come out. So it's very preliminary, but um, I would say it's, it seems positive. So <laughs> it's positive enough that we would, uh, you know, feel confident going out and saying that, you know, we could raise a larger fund, have a more, a better institutional story. We've, we've figured out how to uh, kind of work with our LPs, um, but there's, there's probably one or two things that we're thinking about for the year. Um, we're also thinking about the idea of, of, a, of an, an, a network for accredited investors that allow you to invest in specific deals. And, but it will be different. <laughs> it will be different than what's out there now. So let's get into the fund. Um, you know, as someone who's raised all the way up to my Series A and kind of in pre-Series B or Series B territory, um, I think one of the things that was challenging for me was finding people to lead. Everybody wants to invest in black founders, especially when you have certain metrics and you kind of get your business into the place where you've got all the milestones. Um, but very few people want to lead and or can lead. Um, so do you all, with a $150 million fund, I imagine you have some minimum investment criteria. Mm -hmm. um, what, is your, what is your structure in terms of how you guys evaluate investments? Do you all lead investments? Um, for those in the room who might be pre-Series A, what's, what's like your, your stage as well? Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. 
podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Right. And so, um, you know, depending on where you are in the country, that, that the stage uh, vernacular changes. But we're generally Series A investors. Some things that, some hard numbers to say is that we're looking for companies that have at least a half million dollars of trailing revenue okay. and then, are, and then are, are growing. Our minimum check size is a half million dollars. We, uh, but we have put up to five million into a company, uh, an initial investment. And we have the ability to put up to $15 million into a single company. Right. So, so when we come in, we generally, you know, the typical would be to write that one to $2 million check. And then that next round, we may be writing a three to $4 million check. That next round, we can write a five to $6 million check. So we're looking to long-term relationships with people that we can grow with and support. And we try to be very clear about what our expectations are. So if we invest in Blavity, we're like, you know what? when we had that talk about investing in Blavity, <laughs> I would say to you, you know, these are our, um, 
this is the projections you gave us. You know, if you're on long the trackage projections, you can assume that we're going to be there to support you in, in subsequent rounds. So you as a founder, just one less thing to worry about, right, with the, with the capital raising, because you'll, it'll be very clear what we do. We actually write what's called a bright light memo, where when we invest, we give a memo to the founder that says, all right, we're not going to turn over all of our research, but these are all the things that came up in the team, what we liked, what we were concerned about, what it's like for us to be a partner, what you can expect from us, wow. and what you can count on from us. And yeah. we give that to you before we give you our money. So like, so we've done all this, say, look, here's a very little memo. It's all on the table right now. Um, you know, we're excited to be part of the team, but we want you to be comfortable with this before, you know, we, before we get to a point where it gets hard to turn back. I love that. I don't think only one of my investors has ever set that kind of expectation up front of like, these are the places we can be helpful. This is my expectation of you. This is where um, you can call and we can help figure it out. Um, I also love the idea of really pre-committing to the follow-on because I, I think that that often winds up being a challenge for people. Yeah. And you know, like you raise that money and then people look and say, oh, well, it looks like your investors didn't follow on. Is there something wrong? Right. And it's like, well, no, if they're not a big enough fund, sometimes that's not always the case. Or, right. But I think mm -hmm. this is a huge like advantage for why someone would consider having your money over another. Sure. VC. Yeah, we, we, we look forward to the follow on. And I would say for leading in participating, I think we always try to find uh places where when we invest, we can add more value than just the capital. Um, in those places where for us, like I said, all kinds of signals are sent in venture capital. And we like to lead in situations where not only internally, but externally, it makes sense. Oh, I see why Motley Fool is leading. You know, Motley Fool is investing in Blavity, a media company. I can understand why they're leading that. And you can see how we can add um, value. But we do take leading very seriously we understand the, the dynamics of that um and you're right not everyone is able to do or comfortable doing the level of due diligence that requires and i think most of the time people just are afraid to um set the valuation conversations for sure um so, so we're, we're winding down on time. I want to do a, a quick, fast round on a few different things. So um, first, in terms of books you read, podcasts you listen to, information that you digest, what are the things, like on a regular basis, where, what are the tabs open on your computer? <laughs> that is funny. Um, I, I don't do nearly as much uh, like reading as books as I should. I always say I'm going to. I, I've read about the first chapter of about 500 books. <laughs> and never get back to them. But uh, I <clears throat> voraciously read uh, like um, almost any kind of business news that comes through. CNBC, you can't see it. I have my little, it's not on now, but there's my little iPad. It's, it's like CNBC runs constantly on the day. And it's not that I just... I'm the type of person where I feel like um, <clears throat> I'm always putting together a puzzle. So I really enjoy just like bits of information that are just completely uncorrelated potentially, but then sometimes they just all kind of come together in mm -hmm. things that just make sense. So I'm, I'm just constantly reading tidbits of information. It's probably every email that gets sent out. <laughs> I mean, I have, I, oh, here's a little something for you that I'm just way too personal. Uh, 
and, and actually embarrassing. I have 5,000 unread emails in my email. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Good to know in case I send you an email. All right. So here's the trick. Well, I'll just tell everyone. So here's the trick. If you send me an email and you don't get an answer in two days, you may want to send it again. <laughs> yeah, there's about, I get, about a, I get around 100 emails a day. Wow. I try to stay on top of it, but it's so don't two things. One, if you don't get a couple of days, you know, you may want to pay me. Don't take it personal. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, uh, but anyway. That's great. Um, what are your thoughts on just the state of black VCs and black founders? Uh, what progress have you seen in the last couple of years? What are you hopeful that we can still have some opportunity for improvement? Or where do you, where do you think we as founders need to continue to improve? Sure. I, I think <clears throat> for me, what I've found and I see a, a lot of improvement in it is I think we just need to understand venture capital better. I think the fact of the matter is venture capital is not for everyone. And the more that we can educate um, our black founders on what it means to be in venture capital and to make sure that they're calibrating their goals and expectations along with the industry, I think it's important. The other thing is, you know, as black people, you know, kind of don't have a choice, but I'm very hopeful <laughs> of, of the times right now. We ourselves, even though we're a first-time fund, we've initiated a program where we're investing in other emerging VCs. We're going to allocate a part of our fund to invest in other VCs just because we want to help strengthen the ecosystem. And we think there's some great ideas out there. I mean, it's a, we said this before, it's a shame that I didn't know you were, you were, you were raising for your round. We should have yeah. at least had a conversation. And what being a big proponent of community, I just know we can't do it ourselves. I just can't do everything myself. We have to reach out and work together in order to um, create this environment where uh, great talent can be um, highlighted and discovered and funded because I know it's out there. That's great. So you guys are investing in funds now. So you're becoming a fund of the funds, which is great. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just a small cohort of them, but yeah. But, yeah. And black funds. Some black. Uh, black funds, so underrepresented. Uh, so we look at it's either funds that are either um, run by underrepresented um, VCs or have investment thesis where they're focused on underrepresented founders. Because I think that, uh, as I so tell someone today, I like, uh, I like Black Panther. I also like Black Spider-Man. You know, <laughs> it's just like, I like, I want pe people of color in traditional roles and then also celebrating what we have that's special about our culture. I think both of those are important. And so... I love that. I thought that was a great analogy. <laughs> Just like you said, I'm rooting for everybody black. Um, <laughs> so, so super exciting. Um, any final tips? One, just tips for the young black founder who is, you know, they've got their seed round done. You know, maybe they raised eight hundred thousand dollars, a million point five, maybe up to two million. They're feeling good. They're paying their employees. Maybe they got their first office. Um, had some hiccups along the way. Right. What is it is your advice for those people who are getting ready to try to hit their series A milestones mm -hmm. so that they are the pre-series A milestones so they can go out to raise the A? I think for, for companies, and this is from my experience before being in venture capital and after, is focus on the operations. If your business is working, you will attract capital. I mean, there are some people who are good at fundraising, but then struggle to, <laughs> to make the business move. And you may win in the short term with that strategy. Um, 
But if you focus on the long term and focus on operations and building a great business, it may take a little bit longer, but you're going to be in so much better position. You're going to have so many more options and you're going to get to that point faster where you can choose the VCs that want to invest in your company as opposed to the other way around where everyone starts where you, you, know, you want money from anywhere, which is a very dangerous place to be in, but there's no you know, kind of other alternative. I love that. For the young black woman in the, in the audience who is, wants to raise her first $20 million fund, or first $30 million fund, um, let's say she's working at Google, she's got her operational experience, um, what would you say to her? What are the things she needs to consider as she goes on that pathway? Yeah. And this is, this is easier said than done. I, I do recognize this, but I think in the same way, so I tend to see a brick wall and before I run into it, I say, well, can I go around this thing? You know, going <laughs> 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 into it. And I would say, see if you can first find your tribe. Like as you're going out there trying to launch a fund, you're trying to do something, see if you can find the people who you think your message is going to resonate with it. Yes, yes, it's great to go that traditional route that everyone is telling you, but that, that route may or may not be open to you, right? Um, go find, find, find your people, find the people who your message is gonna resonate with and start to have some conversations with them. Yeah, amazing. Well, Owen, this has been so fun. I could keep going on and on. Thank you for your time today. Uh, AfroTech community, tell us where, where can you find, where can the Afrotech community find you? Where can they reach out? What should they follow? Um, how can they, they pitch you and the team? Yes. yes. What I would say is you can, it's very simple. You can send a, uh, an email to info at fullventures.com. Um, we read everything. <laughs> you know, I, eventually I get around to everything, but the team reads everything. Um, you know, tell them that, you know, you heard me on Afrotech and uh, reach out. And we do. We do conversations with all uh, with with wide ranges of entrepreneurs, depending on stage whether we're investing or not. In fact, we love to create relationships with people um, where we're not looking to invest right now. That may be something that we do later. And then my other dream is to become part of this ecosystem, so that when I find great founders, we can make the right introductions to them, whether that's, that's right. whether that's us or not. I'm, I have no interest in fighting over crumbs. So. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. And it's produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Marissa Lewis. A special thank you to Micah Davis, Jermaine Hall, and Vanessa Serrano. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Enjoy your Black Tech Green Money? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Go get your money. Peace and love. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. Every Thursday, already a know. podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, Gangster Rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.